church, if you'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, as I said earlier, is our text for today as it has been our verse of the month for this first month of the year, the month of January. And today's text and even just verse 17 alone, verse 17 in particular, could easily be described as the thesis statement of Romans. It was these two verses which so gripped Martin Luther and uh, encouraged him on in his Reformation efforts. And in looking at these two verses, or even just verse 17 in particular, if, if we had to boil down Romans to just one to two sentences... So that everyone would know and understand what is this man Paul talking about. It would be our selected text for today. That if we just had to boil it down and say like, let's just summarize all of this into just one or two sentences. It would have to be these two for today. Now that being said, what's at stake today is a couple of things. First, understanding the gospel itself. Because this is a very famous set of texts calling us to gospel unashamedness. Well, in order to be unashamed of the gospel, we must make sure we have a thorough understanding of it, and we'll get to that soon. And then understanding the power and the impact of the gospel on our souls as well as all those who would come to believe it. So let me start today by giving you my thesis statement for this sermon. I want us as a church to have an ever-deepening understanding of the gospel that is constantly moving us towards a humble boldness for the glory of God. I want us to have an ever-deepening understanding of the gospel so that is to, to be at a point where we never think that we are past the gospel or that the gospel is an, an elementary thing. So to have an ever-deepening understanding of the gospel and constantly moving us toward a humble boldness for the glory of God. I'll ask you to stand once more as you are able in honor of the reading of God's word as we read our text for today, which once again is Romans 1 verses 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word this morning, we examine your providential gospel as displayed in your scriptures, promised beforehand through your holy prophets concerning your son. God, I pray that you would bring us to that place of an ever-deepening understanding of the gospel and that you would, in doing so, keep us in a place of humility and boldness, of humble boldness for your glory. That you would give us an insatiable hunger 
to grow in our grasp of the gospel and to be so unashamedly bold for our preaching of the gospel that your glory may be made known among the nations. Humble us at that fact. Keep us in that state. And I pray that through your word this morning, Lord, that you would edify us, your church. Guard me from error. Help me to speak boldly and clearly of your gospel that it may be made known and that we may live according to it. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. We begin our text for this morning with that word that we've already seen many, many times in our approach of the book of Romans, this only being our fourth session here in the book of Romans. And it's that word for, a word which gives us an indicator of coming off the back of everything that has been said before what is about to be said. So it, it, it places everything that's about to be said as hinging on and being established on what has come before it. Going back to the beginning of the letter, we see the passion that Paul has for the gospel. We thoroughly looked at how he takes what is the customary Greek greeting of a letter and he makes it totally gospel-centric. And we see his passion, not just how he has some neat story that has moved and impacted him at a metaphysical level, but has something that he has been called to and set apart for. So we begin to see the truth that this gospel involves us. We see that in Paul's own testimony at the beginning of this letter, that he is set apart for the gospel. So this gospel involves us. It draws us in. It includes us in this good news, lest we forget what that word gospel means. And so as, as the hearers of this, it's, I've been set apart for the good news, this gospel of God. What else do we see? We see that this is a providential gospel as we thoroughly examine promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So not only is it God's providential plan and working, but he has spoken concerning this gospel. He has made it known in a manner in which man can understand in part. So that's something to, to pull from that as well, is that not only is this God's good news for which he sets men apart, for which he calls us and draws us in to be a part of his good news. But God has providentially planned and, and purposed it, and he's spoken concerning it through his prophets, that man may know it, that it may be able to understand and comprehend and then join in his work in the gospel. We also see that what we once knew in part through the prophets, we now know in full through His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has given us salvation and equipping through this gospel. This is what we've seen leading up to today as we've made our way through the first 15 verses and now find ourselves in these next verses 16 and 17. We saw back going back to verse 5, that this gospel and this 
Christ, who this gospel centers on and is accomplished through, gives us grace and equips us for this purpose to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. What we see is that this gospel binds us together, as we saw last week in verses 18 through 15. It binds us together to seek the mutual encouragement and upbuilding of one another. And this moves us to an immediate context for this verse that this gospel obligates us to one another and to the mission of God to preach the gospel. If you'll see there at the end of our verses from last week, verses 14, 15, I am under obligation, Paul says. And in our exposition of that, we saw that the obligation is not so much to the people. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, but what obliges him to the Greeks and the barbarians? What obliges him to the wise and the foolish? I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So what obliges Paul to others is this global mission for God's global glory as explained in the gospel that Paul has been set apart for. And so that's the immediate context for our set of verses for today. For. So because of all this, because we have been bound to this gospel, I've been set apart for this providential gospel, because in this I I long to see you and impart to you some spiritual gift, and, and therefore I'm under obligations to all manner of people, and I am under obligation to all people, whether they be wise or foolish. I am eager to preach the gospel, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, that should cause us to kind of furrow our eyebrows, kind of just question like, why would, he, why would he be ashamed of the gospel? Why make that point? And that's what I want to thoroughly bring out through our entire text for today. This, this, this reason for both not being ashamed of the gospel and how the gospel brings about shame. All right? So Understand what the gospel brings about shame, and I'm going to thoroughly explain what I mean by that. But then, for that very reason, we should not be ashamed of the gospel. Okay? So we're going to see that. And I want to begin with this. Our experience with the transformative grace of the gospel compels us forward in gospel boldness. And that's, that's what we've seen here. Is Paul has fleshed out how he is compelled by the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, to be bold in the gospel. This gospel for which he's been set apart, promised beforehand in the scriptures, spoken of by God through his holy prophets, revealed in full now in the Son, Jesus Christ, for which I long to come to you, church, to be with you and and to be mutually encouraged by one another's faith by which I am obliged uh, under obligation to Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish, to preach this gospel. So he's expounded on his experience with the transformative grace, having been set apart for the gospel, has compelled him forward in gospel boldness. And the same thing can and should be happening in our lives. 
that as we have experienced the transformative grace of the gospel, we ought to echo this compulsion to gospel boldness, to not be ashamed of this message. Having been brought to repentance by grace through faith, the spark is ignited in us to fan forth the flames of the gospel. We see what it's done in us, having realized its truth, and we are energized to share it. Now, when I was but a young man, I was introduced to Christian hip-hop, and my life was changed. What do I mean by that? I could often, if you rode with me originally when I was driving around my mom's car, which was a Toyota Corolla, or when I eventually had my own vehicle, which was Ford F-150, I was often bumping either Lecrae or Triple E or any one of these, right? And it mostly started with a Christian rapper by the name of Lecrae. So I used to go to Lifeway back when it was in the French Quarter in Tyler, and I would buy every Lecrae CD that I could. Right. Eventually, as Lecrae grew in his influence for the gospel, and he formed, he formed a group of like-minded talent that was called the 116 Click. All right. And this, this group grew into my college years as Lecrae began his own production company titled Reach Records. But they always kept the, the 116 Click. And that 116 comes from our, our verse for today. And one of my favorite artists from this group to this day is Trip Lee. Sadly, he's one of, if not the only one left that is solid theologically, but nonetheless. Early on, all the way back in 2012, all the way back, right? <laughs> Trip Lee came out with a song titled 116. And so uh, the song starts like this. So if you guys could go ahead and drop my beat for me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So here's how the song starts. Look, all I need is 116 to brag on my king. Romans 116. We brag about him daily because he runs this thing. All right. So I know, you know, even if you're not into hip hop, right, it sounds even worse when it's coming from a nerdy white preacher standing <laughs> in front of you, right? Nonetheless. So he goes on to say, speaking on the priesthood of the believer, he goes on to say in the song, Cray told me to go in, referring to Lecrae, they got your boy on beast mode, I ain't got no white collar, he made me a priest though. All right? So as a young aspiring preacher, these, so these lyrics were very inspirational to me back in the day. Speaking on how the gospel radically changes what we value, he says, Pray I never fall away, chasing after pocket change. Used to put my stock in riches, I had to stock exchange. This was just blowing my mind back in the day, people, all right? So let me bring all this together. Okay, so why, why do I bring this up? This music came to me at a time in my life when I was absolutely convinced of the Lord's calling on my life to set me apart for the gospel, but I was shy self-conscious, having zero self-confidence. And what's worse, I have very low confidence in my grasp and ability to preach the gospel. But as I heard the, the boldness with which these men sang and rapped about their unashamedness 
of the gospel, I became more convicted that I needed to continue to grow into a faith that reflected that same boldness. And so as we read here in Romans of Paul's having been transformed by the grace of the gospel, set apart for the gospel, that this is what spurns him on, this is what moves him in desire to be with his brothers and sisters in Rome, that they may be mutually encouraged. This is what moves him forward in a desire to preach, not just to those to whom he is writing, but through them to reap even more of a harvest for the gospel and preach the gospel to them and to others, whether it be Greeks or barbarians, wise, foolish, It is this established faith, which we've been talking about over the last two weeks. This established faith, which brings about an obedience of faith, an obedience which flows from this established faith in us that we have because of the gospel. This established faith is a catalyst for gospel boldness. An established faith is a catalyst for gospel boldness. A catalyst is something that begins a flame or expands and perpetually grows the heat of a source of energy or a flame. So that's what the, the gospel, that's what an established faith is for us. So as we come to, know, come to faith through the gospel, as the gospel transforms us by grace through faith, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit within us, this brings about in us a growing hunger for more of the gospel and for more people to know the gospel as the gospel continues to bring about in us the obedience of faith. But what happens? Why, is, why do we not see then so many Christians that are just so overflowing with this catalytic gospel and faith within us that we just can't help but boldly and unashamedly share the gospel. What happens? Why do we so often shy away from gospel boldness? How do we get to a place where we can live in the same spirit of Paul's words here? What happens is we encounter the shame of a world that does not want to hear the gospel. And this is where it is necessary and crucial for us to be unashamed of the gospel. See, the shame that is put against the gospel is the shame of the world. And I'm going to be drawing on these two dichotomies, these two comparisons as we go throughout the rest of this sermon. The shame that is put against the gospel is the shame of the world. And the reason for the shame of the world is that the gospel brings with it a righteous shame. So we encounter the shame of the world that does not want to hear the gospel, and this often causes us to recoil in our faith. And it's that urge to recoil and settle into our Christian groups and be satisfied to let just things be as they may. It's that urge that we have, that temptation rather that we have, to shy away from the gospel and just kind of like, look, okay, I don't need to really like focus on that. I just need to focus on, you know, being with my Christian group and being and making sure I'm, I've got good attendance on Sundays and Wednesdays and, you know, all that, you know, unashamedness, living boldly. I'll kind of like shy away from that and hope nobody really realizes how maybe shamed I am. 
And it's that attitude that Paul wants to attack and pull out at its root. As he's explained how the gospel has impacted him and how it should impact the church, to be mutually encouraged, to you know, spurning him on, that's what is driving this desire. He has this strong desire to be with his brothers and sisters in Rome, which the Lord has not blessed yet. And he wants and he's praying that it will be blessed on this next attempt to come to them. And so Paul wants to pull out of its root any desire that would live in a world of darkness and be ashamed of the gospel. Why does Paul feel the need to establish and preach gospel boldness? And as I said a while ago, the gospel brings with it shame upon the flesh. And we all see this in our own lives. This is where I want to spend most of our time this morning is realizing that the righteous shame which the gospel brings upon us is for the purpose that we may live shameless in this world. The gospel brings righteous shame upon our flesh that we may live shameless in this world. And I'm going to continue to expound on what I mean by that as we move forward. Let me begin though with this. So what do you do when someone strikes you with a jab or an accusation? I want you to think about those situations. We all come into contact with those situations throughout the day. They may be mundane. They may be, you know, huge fights that, that blow up, maybe at home, maybe at work, maybe wherever. Somebody comes at you with a jab or an accusation. No matter how true it may be, our first response in the flesh is to what? Defend, deflect, attack back. Again, like I said, no matter how true it may be. You didn't take out the trash like I told you to. Well, you don't do this whenever you're supposed to. Why aren't the dishes done? Well, I was too busy over here doing this. What were you doing? That might be striking a little too close to home for some of you. All right. Well, what about when it comes to faith? A brother or sister lovingly confronts some sin in our life. And in that situation, that's being done in accordance with the gospel. Realize that. And just simply say, you know, hey, brother, I couldn't help but notice I haven't been seeing you in church. And I know you've been making time for all these other things, and I would really love to see you back in the assembly of the saints. Well, who do you think you are, Mr. High and Mighty? I can have church under a tree or out in a pasture if I wanted to. I know plenty of stuff about your life. Blah, 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 right? See, here's, here's what I want us to see, is that shame distorts the truth of the gospel and tempts us to gospel timidity. So gospel boldness is what we're being called to and being unashamed of the gospel. But shame, specifically the shame of this world, tempts us to gospel timidity. Sinners do not want to hear the shame which the gospel brings. Sinners do not want to hear it because the gospel brings shame upon sin. 
The gospel preaches the hopelessness of the flesh, which means our ways, our wants, our wishes, and our wisdom become shameful in the light of the gospel. The, light takes a, a, the gospel takes a big light and just shines it brightly on all the things that are shameful within us. I want you to see this from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You can turn there or it'll be on the screen, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul's using similar address to the church in Corinth, says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So notice how similar that is to our verses for today. Verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, the gospel takes that bright light and shines it on our flesh and shows us that in all our wisdom that we thought was so lofty and great and grand and all the things that we pursued and desire and all the, the dreams that we built up for ourselves, it says that is shameful in the light of what true wisdom is and in the light of the one who truly causes all things to happen according to the counsel of his will. What possible reason could Paul, or anyone for that matter, have for being ashamed of the gospel? Well, one of the initial agents of the Holy Spirit's power in the gospel is that of conviction. So here I'm talking about that righteous conviction, that righteous shame that I mentioned earlier, which drives us to repentance of sin and faith in Christ Jesus. The gospel causes shame. A righteous shame which we call conviction because it reveals to us a moral law which we have transgressed. It reveals to us a wisdom that is beyond our reach on our own. Therefore, finite man is naturally compelled to shame the gospel. We are naturally compelled to say, now shame on that, that is foolish. That's a stumbling block. Finite man, sinful man is compelled to make those who believe the gospel feel shame. So here's the thing. Shame distorts the gospel in that it would lead us to think that the gospel places all that shame of sin on us. That's how shame distorts the gospel. However, the full and true gospel is that all of that shame, which the gospel initially makes us feel in conviction... All of that shame was purposefully and sovereignly taken from us and placed on Jesus. And so although the gospel makes us feel the conviction of shame, it does not make us feel the condemnation of that shame. Why? 
I want to answer that question. How then does our established faith in the gospel, having been renewed and transformed by its power, how does it become a catalyst for gospel boldness? I want to give us two things here. Two ways in which an established faith in the gospel catalyzes gospel boldness. An established faith catalyzes gospel boldness through a growing knowledge of the gospel as revealed in Scripture, and a growing application of the gospel as revealed in Scripture. That's that obedience of faith that Paul talks about in verse 5. So a growing knowledge of the gospel as revealed beforehand, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Scriptures, as we grow in our knowledge of the gospel through our community with one another in his church, that we may be mutually encouraged, And also as that produces in us, it brings about in us, as he says in verse 5, the obedience of faith. We read this from Paul in Colossians 1. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Sounds similar to what we read last week in verses 8 through 15. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. So that's growing in knowledge of the gospel, filled with the knowledge of his will. He's writing to a church here. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So that's, that's the continued obedience, the application of the gospel there. Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is the gospel of God, which Paul has been set apart for, as we see here in Romans. Perhaps you saw me share this quote earlier this week on my social media from Charles Spurgeon. But he says, nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. You see, when we grasp the gospel church, this is Blake speaking, not Spurgeon anymore, all right. When we grasp the gospel as revealed in the scriptures, we can't help but ever be moved forward in bold obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. I want us to see this thoroughly this morning. So backtrack with me to verse 2. You might be saying to yourself, this is why it's going to take us so long. But backtrack with me to verse 2. Again, set apart for the gospel of God, that's verse 1, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Now we're going to pause right there. Well, why was it promised? For that, we have to go back to the beginning. Before we can understand why the gospel is good news, before we must know and understand that we need to be unashamed of it, no matter how much shame the world heaps on it, we must know and understand why the good news was needed. So we start with God's perfect creation. So we're going all the way back to the beginning here. So Adam and Eve in the garden, having perfect communion with God. God gives the law through the word, through his word of do not eat from the tree. Satan twists God's word, causing man and woman to doubt God's goodness and rebel against him by eating of the tree. But in the curse and the judgment that's handed down by God 
in chapter 3 of Genesis, we're given a glimpse of His grace and we're given a glimpse of the promise to come. The first way we see His grace in the judgment is that the judgment is not that they die immediately, although they will die. We read this in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent here, and between your offspring and her offspring, which immediately gives us a glimpse of what? There will be offspring, right? And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's our glimpse of a promise that there will be an offspring from the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent, thereby reversing the effects of this curse. This is the promise of God that through the very one who sinned, Adam, would come one who would bruise the head of the serpent, showing us first that Adam is not simply the first man, but as such, he is the head of all humanity. So his one act of sinful rebellion against God impacts all humanity. Yet as we see, God graciously promises that one will come from this sinful line of this very man, a seed of Eve, who will break the curse of sin and bring redemption to humanity. Paul expounds on this just a little later in this very letter of Romans. If you'll turn a few chapters ahead to chapter 5. Prior to this, you can see he's talking about how we have peace with God through faith. And we read in chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So there it is, the, the results of the curse, the results of the fall. Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, he goes on to say. And then if you jump to verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. For all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And it's that idea of righteousness that we're going to see as we move through the rest of this morning and then also into next week as we settle on verse 18. But nonetheless, so in Christ, God has fulfilled this promise to crush the head of Satan and redeem humanity from the curse. But still we ask, how did we get there? Because there's a lot that happened between Genesis 3 and the crucifixion, right? That's a yes. Okay. So, so we're, we're looking for this promised seed from the woman. Well, as we go on, even just in Genesis, we see, oh, well, they have, they have two sons, Cain and Abel. Surely the promised one from the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent is one of these. Well, then what happens? Abel's dead and his brother Cain is the one who killed him. So it, it's not one of these, neither one of these are the promised seed from the woman. 
Well, the next, okay, next, surely it's Noah. Noah's the one. Righteous Noah, whom the Lord preserves in the ark and then through Noah continues the human race and and shows his, his providence and his glory. Well, then we quickly see Noah naked in a tent, drunk. So we know it's not Noah. It's the promised one. Well, maybe it's the sons of Noah. It's one of his sons. That's why the Lord told him to get his sons and bring them on the ark. Well, then his sons fulfilled to fulfill the mandate given at creation and given to Noah after the flood. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. What do they do? They gather in one place. They build for themselves a tower of pride. And the Lord then judges them in that and disperses them. Well, we first see then the next big unfolding of God's redemptive purpose through his covenant with Abraham. We go to Genesis 12. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There we're getting another glimpse of how God is fulfilling this promise that one would come from the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. We go on when the covenant is confirmed with Abraham to Genesis 17. Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Same command given in the garden, same command given to uh, Noah. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. The Lord is, through this promise, going about the purpose of redeeming what Adam was supposed to do. We see this. The author of Hebrews speaks to this. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He goes on to say in chapter 2 of Hebrews, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And he goes on to explain this very same thing of of Adam and Abraham in verse 14 of chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in the same things. That is, sending his son in the likeness of flesh. That's the idea that we're going to... That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That's crushing the head of the serpent. That is the devil, he says in verse 14 of Hebrews 2. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And so through Abraham, we continue... To see, that's the story of the rest of the Old Testament is these descendants from Abraham, these ones whom continue to multiply and we're continuing to look for where is this one who is going to crush the head of the serpent? Where is this one who's going to reverse the curse? We get the old covenant. We realize it's not in that. And the rest of the Old Testament follows the offspring of Abraham and their struggle and more often than not out of rebellion against God's righteousness is what we see of these children of Abraham as we follow them along in their struggle. 
against maintaining their covenant relationship with God. But simultaneously, what is also shown time and again is that because of man's constant rebelliousness, God is the only one who can maintain his covenant, and he does so faithfully. So that even as Israel seeks to remove God as king, and they ask for a king to be like all other nations, God provides them a king in Saul, who rules just like the kings of the earth. But then he provides David, his anointed, to draw them back to himself. And through David, he reveals the next covenant unfolding promise of how he's going to bring about this promise, seed from the line of Adam to redeem humanity. We read this in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So kings would come from Abraham. Well, is the king that is really going to come from Abraham? Is that David? Nope. Is it Solomon? Nope. So I'll establish his kingdom. Verse 13 of 2 Samuel 7. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. He goes on to say, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. And so we go on to see Solomon as the throne is removed for him. But then we see King Jesus the true righteous king, the true righteous son from the line of David, have the iniquity of us all placed on him and therefore taking the rod. From David would come a promised kingly son who will establish a never-ending kingdom and throne, giving us resounding echoes of God's promise that a seed would come from the woman who would redeem humanity from the curse. Thus, when Paul summarizes the gospel here in Romans in verses 2 through 4 by saying, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. We had to be according to the flesh so that he would be the seed of the woman. It was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul wants all believers to realize that this gospel story invites us in to join God's grand plan of redemptive work that he alone has accomplished and is accomplishing. For it is the power of God for salvation, we read here. I am unashamed, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first. So through the line of the Jews, the Lord was bringing about this redemptive purpose. And now it has come to the Greek. So what is this unashamedness that we should have? Because the gospel does bring shame. But how are we unashamed of it? This is the good news that God's promised seed from the woman who had crushed the head of the serpent and redeemed the effects of the curse, which he enacted in his covenant with Abraham through his promise of blessing of the nations and providing a kingly rule, which he further revealed in his covenant at Sinai and the giving of the law, showing the depths of man's depravity and his unfailing loving kindness to uphold his covenant, which he further revealed in his covenant with David, promising a true and better king who would establish an everlasting throne and kingdom. All of this 
has been fully revealed and accomplished in the God-man, Christ Jesus, so that whoever believes in him will be redeemed from the curse of the fall and restored to right relationship with God. See, gospel boldness spurns forth from a heart that has been radically transformed by grace through faith. So to be truly unashamed of the gospel, we must see the power of God through his providential working in salvation history as revealed in his scriptures. We go on to read this in 2 Corinthians 1. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's what we see here. That's what it means that this was promised beforehand through the prophets. Promise to Abraham. Promise to the woman. Promise to David. And all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is what we are called to not be ashamed of. Why? Verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Or the idea is they're beginning and ending with faith. That's the idea there of from faith for faith, right? As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. As I said, if you want to narrow down a single verse as to the summation of the thesis of the book of Romans, it could easily be Verse 17, that the righteousness of God is revealed, beginning with faith and ending with faith, from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is where we see the shame of the gospel. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. When the, right, when the light of God's righteousness shines on us in the gospel, all of our feeble attempts at justification are instantly shriveled up. And this is why man cannot stand before God or, uh, the gospel, or, in the, or without the gospel. Because it leaves us with no excuse. It leaves us with no defense. It reveals for us that we are broken. Broken, evil sinners. The righteousness of God reveals just how unrighteous we are really are. In the garden, man dwells in perfect communion with God. After the fall, out of the garden with you. Separation. Separate from his presence. Why? Because the righteousness of God will not have unrighteousness in his presence. Israel comes to Mount Sinai. Moses, my anointed, may come up. Everyone else, stay down or you will die. The separation. Why? Because God is completely holy and righteous. But notice that the righteousness of God is simultaneously the point of shame in the gospel and the reason for unashamedness for those who believe it. Why? Because in the gospel, God does not simply reveal his righteousness to hold it over humanity and say, you can toil all you want, but stay down at the bottom of the mountain. In the gospel, 
we are shown that God has made it possible for his righteousness to be placed on us only because he sent his eternal son to be Emmanuel, God with us. The gospel and the gospel alone is what brings broken sinners into healing forgiveness that we may find true and everlasting joy in the glory of God. The gospel invites us into the story of redemption by revealing our need for redemption and then sends us out in full confidence, boldness, and assurance that we have the true good news message of God's power to save sinners from unrighteousness and make them righteous. Righteous.